As the United Kingdom entered lockdown in March 2020, a moment of perfect timing and coincidence lined up to make at least those first few days and weeks bearable. Tucked up on their sofas, millions of people followed the antics of Joe Exotic as the lovable wannabe cult leader, former meth addict, and irrepressible tiger salesman romped his way through seven fun-filled episodes of him trying to evade justice whilst arranging a murder. When watching the show, my thoughts soon turned to half-remembered news articles about something that sounded vaguely similar. Instead of Winwood, Oklahoma, these reports had come out of rural Cumbria and concerned a very British big cat-owning eccentric. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at him. David Gill, the British Tiger King. So uh, joining me to take a look at David Gill is uh, Geordie Paul. How are you doing, Geordie? Hey, I'm good. Excited to be on the show. Yeah, happy times. So uh, much experience with, um, you know, maverick quasi-legal tiger, tiger owners? Uh, no, personally, I haven't come across any. Uh, that's not sort of where I spend my days, but, um, you know, I'm excited to get to know one. Yeah, I know. It's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So a uh, little bit about you. Anything you want to share with uh, with our listener? Um, he assures me he's interested to learn. Uh I've been to a fair few zoos in my time. I'm in the southwest. We've actually got quite a few zoos, but um, I've never seen anything bad go on there. But I guess maybe, you know, after lockdown, we'll go out uh, and maybe I'll have a look for some of these practices in my own zoos. Yeah, maybe it can inspire you, you know, sort of head down to Bristol Zoo, hunt the penguins, you know, that kind of thing. Just really, you know, David Gill can help you learn to be a worse person. I'm acutely aware that Bristol Zoo is actually closing and going to South Gloucestershire. And now, like, ever since I've heard about something quite slightly concerned that, you know, maybe David Gill's had a hand in it. Oh, David Gill has had a hand in many things. Um, so speaking of that, I think it's best if we just dive in. So um, there is a disclaimer I just do really want to get out of the way. Uh, and this is mainly related to my fear of getting sued. Um, there is another more famous David Gill. He is the one who's got the Wikipedia page. So if you've Googled him before this episode, um, it's probably his Wikipedia you're likely to find. And I want to go on record and say I am in no way alleging that the former director of Manchester United was responsible for anything that I'm about to describe. I don't want to be getting the angry tweets and emails telling me how good his transfer policy was. I don't want him, you know, to have you telling me that he would never have stuck with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this long. Don't want to hear it. I'm not in any way saying that... uh, that the David Gill who worked with Alex Ferguson was responsible for tiger cruelty. So just really do want to get that one out there before the, the militant hordes of online United fans come at me. I'd, um, I'd like to follow that up with, I did Google David Gill as well uh, before we started the show. Uh, and you know who comes up before the zookeeper? David Gill, um, a professor of politics. So I assume, you know, we might need to add to the disclaimer as well, that it wasn't this professor of politics either. So yeah, other David Gills, I'm sorry if this in any way sort of rebounds into your Twitter mentions. This is honestly not what I'm trying to do. Just, uh, you know, you hang in there and don't abuse any big cats. Um, So as we've established, this David Gill is nothing to do with football. He is instead Cumbria's answer to Joe Exotic. So whilst he may lack the flair and wackiness of his American counterpart, Gill is fascinating in his own right and shows another facet of the megalomania that can manifest itself through the keeping of dangerous animals. Um, I know we both watched Tiger King. Um, Uh, We had a great time in peak lockdown watching Tiger King. It was, I mean, just incredible. And I think, you know, for all that, you know, 
anything on television with large dangerous animals is going to draw in viewers you know they're interesting they're exciting there's a reason why for thousands of years we've been fascinated with them the people were sort of the key to the story being uh, you know what it was and having the success that it did and um yeah sort of looking at um you know looking at joe exotic there was definitely something going on it, it was like an addict you know i know for all the drugs and stuff the compulsive purchasing and breeding of animals um did manifest itself as looking a bit like an addiction um i don't know what your thoughts on on that sort of well, thing is. yeah i sort of wonder whether to deal with you know zoos and sort of big dangerous animals like this whether it does sort of take that kind of person you know and actually humans when they see big animals really the natural response fight or flight you know is run away so i wonder you know if you have to be a sort of a bit broken to be sort of drawn into these dangerous animals and want to spend your time around them, which is the sort of thing that creates these Joe Exotics and these David Gills. Well, that's, a, yeah, now, so, so just look at my, because I'm not saying whether David Gill does or doesn't have, you know, any kind of odd behaviour, which is leading up to this, but I'd say just, we'll look at, you know, what's happened and you and me and the listeners can all draw our own conclusions. Um, but I suppose the best place to begin is the beginning. So, it all seemed to start out rather innocently, at least if you believe the man himself. Gills talked about his love for animals and how it manifested at an early age, spending his weekends at a local farmhouse in the nearby Dalton, it's in Cumbria, and helping out with the livestock in exchange for a cooked breakfast and lunch. The passion grew as he got older, with Gills saying that through his work for an animal feed company, he often came into contact with creatures that were slated to be put down and ended up taking them home to spare them. He moved his collection from his suburban home to a small farm and soon found himself in possession of a large number of farm animals, as well as more exotic fare like raccoons and wallabies. For a while, he appeared to be content with this existence, but then suddenly something changed. So I was going to try and read it out in his voice, but then I don't know. He doesn't really have like a particularly sort of fun or, or distinctive voice. So um, sort of David Gill, when he's asked about how he got started out, he went, I suppose I had my Damascus Road experience. I woke up one morning and decided I want to change the world, to educate people, to save animals, to have a wild animal park. Most people thought I was totally crazy, particularly some of my family. I had to give up my whole career. It was a big risk, but I felt it was my mission. I sold my house and set about building the park. And that was him talking to the uh, the Northwest Evening Mail. Um, what what career was it that he was giving up? Sorry, Animal feed salesman. So, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily giving up a career it feels very similar you know it's yeah i feel there's a pathway back isn't there there's like i used to have a lot of animals i did feed them that's not the reason i don't have a lot of animals anymore don't look that up would you like to buy some animal feed you'd be working with the same connections wouldn't you because presumably he's feeding these animals so you know Uh, yeah keep keep listening um we'll we'll come on to that in a bit Okay, I, you know, I think he's a bit of a dramatic character about, you know, giving up his career when it is sort of, you know, he's just sort of following, you know, a, an unhinged path, but but a path nonetheless. Well, I mean, the thing is, you look at this and there are uh, stories of it, you know, I think Gerald Durrell is one of the most famous ones, uh, the founder of Jersey Zoo. And it was back in the 50s when obviously, you know, regulations are not quite what they, they are now, but he was a professional animal collector who after one trip kept the collection first and then looked for a zoo site later. And he genuinely, you know, uh, did do quite a lot in the way of conservation, um, successful author, um, particularly with sort of small mammals. He's, his foundation has established a lot of breeding patterns. So there are people with genuinely good intentions um, who, who have this kind of feeling. It just seems that 
with David. The intentions may have been good at least to start out with, but uh, as we'll you know we'll learn, um, things took something of a turn. Um, I mean, we're saying you know about sort of, this is a bit mad. It, it turns out quite a lot of other people agreed. He did initially struggle to attract funding for the new project. He only gained the money when he told the bank the loaners for building a house. So you know, first bit of gillism, you know. Yeah. Oh dear. You know, mortgage fraud. <laughs> The way that every successful business starts out. It's, it's the foundation of everything. <laughs> it's a, it's a house. Don't look at the giraffe. It is a house. Here's a pet. Sort of, you know, post-industrial era, where, you know, financial markets became maybe the, the most important thing in the world. Since then, everything just built on the back of mortgage fraud. Love it. I mean, it's just the the fact that as well, this is something that, like, I've got from interviews from this is openly admitted this is not like something that's been dug up by by investigative journalists like, yeah said it was a house stuck some lines in the garden suddenly it's a zoo well, well what are you gonna do barclays we're pre-2008 aren't we so it's sort of we the are. wild this is west the early 90s so yeah you know, you know peak peak unregulated I can feel the wall that is 2008 coming but this you know is, we're not there yet so this is the john major years of uh you know a weak tory government um being dictated to by banks um well you sort of you get a birth certificate followed by a mortgage application don't you yeah so, ah, you've uh, you've mortgage fraud before have you we can only uh, we can only allow you free uh free semi-detachments with your kind of record <laughs> you know it, it, it i mean yeah he, he very much was a man taking advantage of the you know the time he was living in um it did kind of balance out because the house was constructed and it became his on-site residence whilst also acting as collateral that can be seized should the venture prove to be unsuccessful. And then the building for the rest of the zoo soon followed. Uh, on the 24th of May, 1994, South Lakes Wild Animal Park opened its doors to the public and was admittedly a roaring success, pun not intended. Uh, 1,500 people attended on the first day. And bearing in mind his budget was to get 10,000 visitors all year, pretty triumphant opening um yeah it couldn't really ask for much more there yeah i mean you know you i you know i've, I've spent a fair bit of time at sort of the, the lakes in cumbria and um you know it's it's beautiful um it is also an area with uh, sort of limited amenities particularly if you're living there and um it's quite a poor area as well so you know bringing in business like this as we will go on to see um you know was seen as a, uh, a broadly good thing for the area. Uh, you know, the, the zoo seemed to go from strength to strength. Visitors poured through the gates. There were no controversies. And Gill appeared to be happily married whilst living with his wife and children. Uh, the zoo was even featured on a 1996 episode of The Really Wild Show, where it was visited by Michaela Strachan. So, again, maybe a little bit before your time. Um, but, yeah, quality CBBC fair back in the day. Um, but great, great for the local area, you know. So, oh, oh. Good so far. Got to meet Michaela Strachan, you know, just uh, everything going well. Presumably, I mean, I would say Michaela Strachan has not been available for comment. I, like this is a professional enough, you know, venture that I even have reached out to her um, or would <laughs> even know how to. But, you know, we can we can say that. Um, I don't believe that Michaela Strachan was responsible for, again, anything that you're going to hear about going forward. So, you know, just, again, for the libel purposes, not putting any blame with Michaela. No, no, don't worry. We're not blaming a, a children's television presenter. 
again, yeah, let's uh, <laughs> try not to get sued. That is my ultimate goal by doing this. Is if I can put this out and face zero legal action, you know, regardless of the shoddy research, the poor presentational skill, um, you know, the the substandard audio. Ultimately, the the lack of legal action is is really what I'm going to be measuring my success on. So. Moving forward a few years, you know, I've had a couple of years, Gil's living with his family, he's going well, blah, 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 animals seem alive. Um, we're going to fast forward to 1997, which is a, quite an eventful year. Uh, so Tony Blair's new Labour comes to power. Uh, the Spice Girls really spice up your life. And uh, in Cumbria, a rhinoceros got shot to death. Oh dear. Wasn't where you thought um... I was going with that, was it? No, I sort of, you know, 1997 sounds like such a great, happy year. Um, yes. I mean, maybe the rhinoceros was a one-off. Um, yeah, the first professional Lions tour, Jerry Guskett scored a drop kick to beat South Africa 2-1. Great, you know, great series. Um, but not where I was going to go for the third part of this. Um, um, you know, big setup, big happy setup, then sad rhinoceros. Sad rhinoceros. Sad, dead rhinoceros. So... What you really want now is to find out more about that rhinoceros so we can really prod you where it's emotional. Um, well, yeah, I didn't want to be happy today, don't worry. No, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, you're aware of my long-term plans of, I, you know, if this goes well, I will release a Patreon of more cheerful episodes because, you know, following drug dealing is my model. If you want more happiness, you are going to have to pay for it. Um, <laughs> but with this free release, um, enjoy learning more about a dead rhino from 24 years ago. So her name was Zimba, and the story of her demise is both tragic and something of a herald things to come. Four days before her escape, the rhino had featured in a photo with Gill as part of a piece for the local paper, so that's the Northwest Evening Mail. Um, I'll stick links of this up to the, on the Twitter as well, um, you know, so you can see what we're talking about. We're going to put all the sources in, um, uh, sort of accessible on, on the Twitter page, so don't worry. Um, but, you know, she's in the paper, photo of Gill pretty normal you know when promoting a zoo it's naturally you want to show the public a bit of what they can come and see um what is less normal is that instead of standing next to her or in front of her pen gill decided that the best option was sat on her back with his cowboy hat raised in one hand above his head because that just screams professionalism it what it screams it is white man i'm, I'm not gonna lie to you oh david gill has got big white boy energy yeah you know, uh, when when Tom Hanks' son was saying it's going to be a white boy summer, David Gill, he was fucking buckling up. The cowboy hats come out. You know, he, I mean, I heard he responded saying you weren't there in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much more of a white boy summer <laughs> than getting your rifle and shooting a rhino. <laughs> like, honestly, um, yeah, he has got David Gill has got big middle manager on a stag do vibes. But he did that consistently for 24 years. It was like the party never stopped. To be fair, I'm impressed by anyone that can sort of live a sort of wild lifestyle for an extended period of time. Oh, it's incredible. And to be fair to him, you know, for for all we're looking at, when you look at characters like this, there is, you know, I know it's quite a big leap. or determination. Well, yeah, there's a great great determination. There's also, you know, where you look at Tiger King, Joe Exotic had his substance abuse problems. Um, You know, you look at other sort of maverick figures. They are often, you know, when they can't get the stimulation, you know, their uh, problems can develop substance abuse of alcohol. I haven't read much in terms of that with Gil. I I think as far as I can read, he does drink. But there's no, nothing I've read implying like a, 
any kind of problem with it or you know that it's not under con- you know to mean that he's a problem drinker in any way i've not read anything implying that he uh has consumed drugs at any point um so it does seem to be this is how he he gets his kicks yeah uh, genuinely this is- yeah this sounds bad but to me that's almost worse like, yeah, he is someone, a you know, walking does, argument like, to legalize exactly- weed if they do like if someone does like a load of blow and then they do something stupid and like they've got an addiction problem and they're like running a horrible zoo you know oh it's not them it's the drugs but if they're sober and their like default thing is to go and run a zoo abuse a load of animals and shoot a rhino that says something about them more than anything well that's the thing and i think throughout the story i do get the impression he is kind of in this for the frills um, and we'll we'll have more evidence on that later as to why I think that. And again, you, know, you and the listeners can make your minds up. But um, I do feel that, you know, the, the driving factor in David Gill's lifestyle is excitement, um, you know, partially coming from wild animals. And there's one other source he gains it from, which we're going to go into in a bit. But sorry, just well, it's Zimba. So um, he's taking a photo. He's sat in the back, got the cowboy hat on, you know, David Gill just being the biggest whitest middle manager you have ever seen um the picture predictably drew outrage from the powers that be gill says it was the zoological society which i think is unlikely because that is the uh the former name of london zoo which they abandoned uh prior to world war one so uh i think he doesn't know what he's talking about i think he means biaza which is the british and irish association of zoos and aquariums but you know good to know that somebody who has over 20 years industry experience doesn't know what the regulatory body's called um, I mean, why would he need to? He's never even considered it. Oh, I mean, he would need to, if nothing else, just to know who keeps on sending him letters and emails. Um, <laughs> he, he is, he will become familiar with their existence. But okay. yeah, the institution, presumably BISA, uh, quite reasonably felt this was not the sort of image that a serious institution should be projecting. By the time the week was out, Gill must have been wishing that the newspaper article was the biggest blow to his credibility. Whilst there'd been some sensationalising of events, with one particularly irresponsible piece of radio reporting telling listeners that the creature was rampaging down the A590, the generally accepted version is that Zimba used her three and a half tons of bulk to break through the walls of her pen and was headed towards the outside world. Once this had happened, Zimba's fate was sadly sealed, and between them, Gil and a police marksman brought her down before she'd escaped the site. Again, there was a police marksman present, you know, a, yeah. a trained, licensed individual who's had to go through a lot. Why are you getting involved, David? Can we sort of put in a freedom of information request regarding that 999 call, please? <laughs> don't worry, you don't need to send anybody. I've got me rifle. I've got me white boy I, I, summer. I've got me rhino. It's almost like, you know, they were side by side in a shooting competition. Like, oh, if I shoot it, I win. No, if I shoot it, I win. But at least the policeman, that's his job. You know, he's, oh, been, yeah, called, like... he's been called over. They... David Gill is a, he's like the backseat driver of rhino shooting. Yeah, quite frankly, if David Gill can't build a wall strong enough to stop the rhino from getting out in the first place, I don't trust him to be able to be a sufficient marksman like, to deal with the rhino once it's escaped. Yeah, I just, you know, and again, I think this does come back into that sort of almost, um, you know, H-Rider, Haggard, you know, uh, Tarzan of the Ape Men, you know, the white man is master nature vibe. There, it is something that to me sort of strongly does uh does leap out there you know that the sort of the the trope of the great white hunter you know and and you know we see that in modern media you know the, sort of the first jumanji film has that character and um sort of chris pratt's character in jurassic park kind of embodies well, that a bit albeit 
in modern media they're generally a bit more sort of conservationally minded but um it's just it's the most prevalent hang-up of colonialism i think is sort of this white man in nature you know before they destroy it but you know sort of having dominated it and you know there's nothing wrong with loving nature in the outdoors you know and you know it's just it's the manner in which he is doing it is uh, well, yeah is so the phrase is if you love something let it go not if you love something shoot a bullet at oh it. i don't know he let it go it, it wasn't done deliberately <laughs> I'll be, yeah i'll be it unintentionally <laughs> he did let it go to be fair for <laughs> about you know a mile down the a590 before he shot it yeah oh david uh this is the sad thing is we're barely even touching the surface of this we've got to move on um so um rhinos are classified as dangerous animals zimba sadly had the potential to endanger lives you know ultimately for no fault of her own but she's three and a half tons she's panicky you know she's going towards a public road sad as it is shooting her was probably the right call by the trained police officer again what david's doing is um you know I get if there's no one on site and he has to make a decision, but as I said, you know, you've got a police marksman there. I think that person knows what they're doing. Um, so at this point, the photo, which had previously been seen as misguided, could now be seen as evidence of a flippant attitude towards his responsibilities. The incident ended up resulting in a fine for Gil. Uh, this is where I'm going to introduce you to another one of David's charming little quirks of either ignoring or vastly understating fines from regulatory bodies. So, he claims it was £1,500 and doesn't specify what for, while sources varied as the BBC, The Sun and The Daily Mail all report £10,000 for endangering the public and failing to have adequate barriers. So, I mean, either or, I know he's really scaled that down. £10,000 doesn't even seem like a lot. That sounds like he's got away with a lot there. I mean, I think the idea, and again, I'm not an expert on this, so if you know, anyone wants to, to get in touch and correct me, is that fines of zoos have to be deterrent enough that obviously you want to promote proper safety. Um, but I think there is an implicit understanding that, you know, if you are holding wild animals, you should be working towards acceptable safety standards. So the fines should be determined, but equally you don't want it to be a bit where an industry that can often make quite slim profit margins might have to make cutbacks elsewhere. So yeah, I guess if, you know, you hold, if you, you know, sort of skimp them out with the fines, it just means they don't have the money to rebuild the wall properly. That's what, I'm, And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but that is the, from the the limited reading I've done on it, that's the impression I've got. Again, I'm I'm open to correction by anybody who actually knows what they're talking about. Um, but you know what I mean. I think the idea is, you know, it's a slap on the wrist. It's you know, this is enough money that you'll miss it, but not enough that you know we're going to cripple your institution and you know need to rehose you know, rehose rehome a bunch of animals. Um, so that that's kind of the the impression I'm getting. Um, so. You know, we've, we've heard about the rhino. The incident in isolation may not seem too bad. You know, we we do all make mistakes. What happened was horrible, but the death of the rhino was, you know, you could argue it was necessary when it came to protecting the public. Um, you know, unpleasant, but it's the first thing that has, has happened to this nature. You know, the park's been going three years. Animals escaped. Animals do escape from zoos. Normally, it's smaller ones. Normally, it's an amusing local news story rather than, you know, tragic rhino death. But um, yeah, unfortunately, it would not prove to be an isolated incident, and indeed, it was not the only controversy Gil found himself embroiled in that year. No, it's a year for Gil. Well, um, you know, I said David Gill gets his excitement not from substances or alcohol. Um, mm. We've established that one way is you know this sort of reckless, 
sort of yeah colonial fantasy inspired behavior around animals if david gill loves one thing more than recklessly endangering animals it's shagging oh brilliant yeah i mean this in itself is not inherently problematic you know i think that people you know people's sex lives should not be sort of pride in i think as long as everyone is a, is a consenting adult and knows what they're getting into whatever you want to do may may seem odd but if you're happy doing it the person you're doing it's happy to you know, having it done to them i i don't feel it's something you know we can a society can be sort of more judgmental and i feel that you know there are worse things to judge someone on their particular sort of sexual peccadilloes yeah it's it's not a moral issue yeah exactly you know what i mean you know i think yeah what i'm going to tell you may be a moral issue Okay. Um, so specifically, we're looking at the instance surrounding the collapse of his first marriage, and um, I'll give you the facts, and you can uh, you can see what you think. So, David Gill is married, living in the zoo, supervising the various zoo stuff, and he meets Shelley Goodwin, who was either sixteen or seventeen when Gill began his affair with her. Goodwin had yeah, come how to old the zoo. is Gill at this point? Um, again, between thirty-seven and thirty-nine. Okay, so problematic age gap, you know, not technically uh, illegal, but problematic age gap. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just just listen on. Okay. Goodwin had come to the zoo straight from school to work for the kangaroos, and Gil was her first and only boss who controlled access to the incredible creatures she dreamed of working with since she was a small girl. He's also more than 20 years her senior. And, um, yeah, there is a very marked power dynamic. Um. So, you know, he controls her employment. He controls which animals she works with. Um, so, you know, do you want to work with the marsupials or do you want to be going to the pygmy goats? Again, I'm not saying that's a conversation he had with her, but he unquestionably had the power to do that. Um, it's her first job. It is the only sort of authority figure she's had outside of education or uh, or her family. And, um, yeah, she's not legally old enough to drink when this begins yeah that, that's difficult you know it's sort of in every aspect of her life he is her senior well and has i'm a sort of i'm level of control this way. if he wanted to take her on a date to a pub to have a drink he would have had to have bought her a hot meal in order to also purchase her alcohol <laughs> so um you know just i feel that is a uh that's all I'm going to say on, on the matter and, you know, whether it's right or wrong. I know it's legal, but um, yeah, I just, you know, the thing of uh, David taking out for a romantic carvery so she can have half a cider. Yeah, we'll leave that one up to the listeners, but yeah, please do keep this in mind. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, you know, I was saying is there are easy comparisons to be made with True Exotic's Pursuit of Travis or Doc, R- uh, Doc Antle's harem of brainwashed brides. And you know, what does seem to be true was that the uh, the opportunity to work with wild animals provides a certain pull that the unscrupulous are quick to take advantage of. So, again, you know, don't know about you, but I got major Tiger King vibes there when they're talking about, you know, this sort of young, innocent, came here to yeah. work with the animals, latched onto by the owner very quickly. Well, yeah, who doesn't sort of like these exotic animals? And then, you know, so to have a chance to work with them, you'd sort of do anything. And sort of, you know, in Tiger King, for example, you saw all these volunteers basically working full-time jobs for free, you know, and I think there is this real power that you have in having something that, you know, everyone wants. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 and in many ways, it's sort of a dealer-user relationship, isn't it? Yeah. 
unfortunately, the type of person it seems to attract is one who can be led easily and sort of, you know, the the less morally sound people will, will take control over them and, you know, sort of holds these animals over their heads. I think the other thing as well is because for all the disaster, you know, disaster stuff that happened, David Gill operated a zoo to a degree of success. And I think to be able to sort of exert that kind of control over those animals, some of those skills will be transferable to, you know, exerting control over human beings. Well, absolutely, you know, we, we're just clever apes, aren't we? But, you know, so, sort of but, you know non-verbal communication. Dangle the right thing, yeah, sort of dangle the right bit of meat in front of anyone. Yeah, you know, sort of non-verbal communication, being able to read sort of power dynamics um, easily, you know, uh, like you said, uh, understanding when to offer reward and when to offer punishment. Like, there's, I think there is, there's definitely an overlap um, when you when you look at this kind of this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was a, it was interesting. Once you know, another another comparison of our friend in Oklahoma. Um, but unfortunately for David, this level of control did not extend to his wife Alison. She filed for divorce, taking their two children with her as she left. Gil continued his relationship with Shelley Goodwin, with the pair marrying in 2000. So at this point, Shelley Goodwin will have been 19, I think. Yeah, it's nice that he wasted old enough that he didn't have to ask for her parents' permission to marry her. You know, that, that's a real good thing that he did there. Yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ. It's just the whole, the whole thing. Uh, I mean, I'll just read you what I'd written when I was discussing this, <laughs> when I was putting this episode together. Perhaps it is unfair to speculate on the dynamic of Gill and Goodwin, and it was simply a healthy relationship between a 39-year-old business owner and his teenage employee. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You know, the fear of getting sued really driving me. Um <laughs> You do you, David. Just, you know, don't do people who are, again, under the legal drinking and driving age. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the other thing. You know, it's quite possible that when they first met, Shelley Goodwin wasn't old enough to have had a driving license. Well, I was thinking, like, did her mum sort of drop her off at the zoo she worked at? You know, we're like, bye, mum, just going to do my job. You know, sort of all the while she was with the owner. Yeah. And I think that is the thing, you know, because of sort of what this is and the nature of organization, particularly from the early years, there isn't a lot of records. And, you know, the media interest in Gil did build up in the late years around some of the interests, uh, the interests, the incidents we're going to cover later. Um, so from this early stuff, there is, you know, even things like getting Goodwin's exact age. I've seen her, her age being reported at different uh, points in different papers. They all agree, you know, she was at 16 or 17, but they they'd seem to be sort of six months out from each other with their birthday. You know, the male's got one thing, the guardian's got another, BBC's got another, mirror's got another, sun's got another, you know. So you're looking mm. across these variety of sources and information is quite hard to come by, which again, I feel maybe sort of how he's able to get away for it so long. Um, it, it's pre-smartphone and sort of everything being recorded, isn't it? Well, exactly, yeah. And, um, you know, he's... Um, he's very much a beneficiary of that kind of era because you imagine the footage of the rhino escape now oh yeah you know the public outcry would be such that you know he wouldn't have a zoo anymore because you know if i saw you know on snapchat a story of you know a rhino charging into things you think in that thing's getting five hundred thousand hits on its first day on whatever social media platform Uh, absolutely and i mean it'll be broadcast on every bit of news as well because you know all the news um organizations will pay for this sort of stuff it was 1997 and we knew less 
you can get away with so much more because of that. Uh, as Tony Blair was also, you know, discovering much to, uh, you know, <laughs> much to our detriment. Right. Okay. So getting back to where we were, um, David Gill, creepy relationships. Duh, duh, duh. Ah, right. Okay. So this bit's not actually particularly. Well, the last bit wasn't particularly funny, but um, this is uh, this. It gets worse. Um, so. What is not up for, up for debate and how problematic it is, is that in 2001, there was a female member of staff whose treatment was unequivocally appalling. Clara Kitson was a keeper whose duties included setting up the tiger enclosure for feeding time. This was an eye-catching display where the cats would scale a huge upright log with meat attached at the top in order to showcase their athleticism and grace, uh, while the keeper gave a talk about them and asked for donations. When Kitson discovered she was pregnant, she made the quite reasonable assumption that going up and down a ladder whilst carrying heavy lumps of meat might not be the safest thing for her to be doing. She'd also received medical advice about the dangers of being exposed to feline feces and the pregnancy complications that this could lead to, so thought that perhaps a change in duties might be necessary. David Gill disagreed, calling into question her commitment and suggesting that she instead get an abortion. That That's a normal thing to tell your employee, I guess. I mean, she... Um, yeah i mean i don't know what the regulations were at the time i i sort of you know i imagine they were less but, you know well, has this man never heard of reasonable adjustment before well kitson was later dismissed from her role a decision which she says was solely due to her pregnancy um gill disagreed but uh in david gill's corner he had david gill in laura kitson's corner she had the people who sat on her employment tribunal and decided to award her thirty thousand pounds in damages uh, David Gill at this point is still denying the allegations that she was dismissed due to pregnancy. Well, even after he's lost. Oh, even after he's lost. I mean, to be fair, I've had an employee uh, an employment tribunal, and um, you know, again, was successful. And I know the person who I was up against in that is still believing that it was a fix-up and that I'd somehow colluded with the judge. Oh, fantastic! I mean, I can never lose because anything that goes against me is a collusion. No. That that yeah. is sort of the sort of narcissist's view. He had David Gill vibes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is, you know, Gill, and this is another pattern we're going to see throughout, you know, this is uh, the attribution of sort of spurious claims of bad attitude towards figures who disagree with Gill, that people are negative or, you know, shouldn't be doing this. And it is, again, that almost cult-like mentality of, you know, following this strong charismatic leader figure. Uh, again, I don't think it was ever so formalised as to, you know, properly qualify as a cult, but it was definitely a bit beyond, you know, a normal employee-employer relationship. So, the early 2000s are a bad time if you were a large mammal at the South Lake Zoo, uh, with a tree of giraffes being the first unfortunates. Autopsies carried out on each animal revealed they had respectively died of tetanus, heart failure and vitamin deficiencies. The zoo's response was to blame the animal's food and switch to a different brand. Now, I'd just like to again point out that David Gill, former animal food salesman, apparently could <laughs> yeah. not identify the suitable brands until the three of the giraffes had died. Yeah, you know, did, I'm more concerned now about the years as an animal food salesman. Did, did he leave a trail of bodies in his wake from the start? Well, he claims that he kept on coming across animals shit slated to be put down, presumably at farms where he was selling the food, and you're just like... I'm not saying there is a link. I'm just saying questions should be asked. David Gill, supplier of like your last meal. <laughs> it's a funny thing, David. Since you've been giving us food, we keep on having to put these animals down. But uh, it's good of you to take them off our hands. I've got a little life hack for you. 
if you let them loose, the police will do it for free. (laughs) (laughs) David Gill's hunting, shooting and fishing experience. Jeez, oh, he's so rogue. But I mean, like... In his defence, vets are expensive. You know, <laughs> when I was a kid, I had a hamster and it cost £60 for the hamster to be put down. So I do get, you know, why he might sort of try and cut corners. But, you know, giving them poison foods, you know, like mercury I mean, foods. Once again, for any lawyers listening, we are not accusing David Gill of deliberately poisoning these giraffes. No, I'm sure it's a simple misunderstanding. Well, by the maybe something of a red herring, um, because the... You know, as I said, the symptoms were tetanus, heart failure and vitamin deficiencies. Now, food is a plausible explanation for vitamin deficiencies. You know, it's uh, particularly in captivity. It's very important to regulate an animal's diet to make sure it's getting everything it needs. Um, But the other two seem rather harder to attribute to purely dietary reasons. Uh, Whilst it is true that uh, what you eat can certainly affect your heart, giraffes are also animals that have a naturally high blood pressure due to the need to pump blood through their gigantic necks. Um, this appears to cause no inherent ill effects. So, you know, a healthy giraffe is, it's got high blood pressure, but that's natural. You know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not impacting the giraffe's quality of life when it's very healthy. It's a necessity. Yeah, exactly. But it does make them vulnerable when they become stressed. Uh, Again, with them being sort of, you know, ungulate herbivores, their fight or flight response, they would prefer flight. But if they're in an enclosed area, and flight, you know, is a limited possibility, the stress can mount because, you know, the, the giraffe's preferred course of action isn't open to it. So a 2012 case in Poland showed how after becoming panicked as a zoo they lived in was broken into, uh, two giraffes died with one case due to stress and the other a heart attack. A similar case occurred in Taiwan where failure to properly transport a giraffe led to a stress-induced heart attack. So ultimately this is speculation. And I think it is important to address it as such. But, you know, an animal which, uh, you know, it's not like a carnivore where it is eating this meat where the wrong cut can, you know, lead to uh, cardiovascular issues. It's a purely herbivorous animal. Um, Heart-related problems from diet are unlikely, whereas, you know, there are numerous examples of giraffes, particularly in captivity, um, suffering heart problems as a direct relation to uh, a stressing environment. So, again, yeah. make your own minds up. But I would say that there's uh, there's room for there is room for doubt. Um, the most unlikely thing is that the tetanus death was caused by incorrect nutrition. Um, again, I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I've done a little bit of research. The evidence I found was that uh, giraffes contract tetanus in much the same way that humans do, namely by an infected cut. Uh, a journal on tetanus in animals published in February 2020 by Michael R. Popoff, great name, um, says in its abstract summary that tetanus is caused by tetanus toxin, TENT, produced by Clostridium tetani, an environmental soil-borne gram-positive sporulating bacterium. The disease most often results from wound contamination by soil containing C. tetani spores. Wound contamination from soil. Yeah, not not, you know, ingestion of food yeah so this paper was 
more in relation to common and domestic animals, but the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians gives the advice that giraffes are indeed susceptible to tetanus, but their, their guidance is in relation to giving tetanus vaccines on at least a yearly basis, if not more frequently, if the individual keeper or veterinarian thinks it is necessary. They make no mention of diet being a factor, and the only connection between eating and tetanus I have managed to find is that if the food provider is left in contact with soil carrying the, the bacteria, then it could make its way into the animal's bloodstream should it have cuts in or around the mouth. So, you know, not uh, hard to blame on the food. Because yeah, it's not a digestion issue. Well, like, even if it's something to do with the food, you know, why is the draft got cuts in its mouth? Well, why is contaminated food being sold? Well, that's what I was going to say, right? The implication with this was that it was a prepared food brand. So one that is presumably from, uh, you know, somewhere which is regulated, you would hope. And you're essentially implying that this food contains tetanus. You know, that this, yeah. this pre-packaged I mean, food is, you know, like, which I, to me just seems insane. Yeah, what it, what it sounds like, you know, and even then, sort of, no matter what, you know, if you'd been giving the tetanus vaccines enough, this wouldn't have happened anyway. You know, no matter how the tetanus got in there, surely, you know, if the vaccinations were up to date, this wouldn't have been an issue full stop. Well, exactly. I mean, that is, you know, the other question. And I keep saying this, but listen on for the uh, the standards of veterinary care at South Lakes, because this is probably the golden era for uh, the veterinary support given to the animals here. <laughs> they have a vaccine once every 10 years. But, you, know. you don't know how you good, you don't know how good you've got it, giraffes, <laughs> as you lie on the autopsy table. Oh, fuck. Um, so, um, you know, there's no concrete evidence, but a cynical mind could ask whether the zoo is being entirely honest about how these particular animals have come to make their end. Years later, in 2017, a visitor named Laura Ainsworth took a photo that showed a giraffe with an open wound on the side of its head in the barn where members of the public could feed them carrots. Once again, listeners must draw their own conclusions. So, you know, you've got giraffes which have head cuts. Um, I know that male giraffes, um, particularly sort of young males, still trying to find their place in sort of the pecking order. When they fight, they do sort of crash necks, but sometimes they can sort of butt heads a bit as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you know, if you I've seen them in the wild and I've watched documentaries. You can sort of see that. Again, there were, you know, aggression is a stress factor um, in a lot of animals when they're kept, that they'll become aggressive if they're, they're stressed out. And again, you know, it's one thing if the animals hurt each other to an extent, you can say, you know, there's always a risk if you leave animals on their own that that could happen, but that these wounds are not being treated if this is the yeah. case. It, I just think there are questions to be asked. And I mean, yeah, there's one thing to have a serious like a series of events where each individual event can be explained as a, a freak accident. You know, sort of how unlucky do you have to get to sort of have this happen week in, week out? Well, exactly. And, you know, again, we're still kind of in the golden era for South Lakes. Um, but, you know, there's still stuff happening. I mean, if you get a little bit further, um, in August 2002, there was another tragedy as a kangaroo and two tigers all died in relatively quick succession across the course of a few months. The autopsies this time revealed that one of the tigers had a quite severe liver and kidney tumours, which may have contributed to its unexpected demise. So, yeah, again, you know, um, when you're holding a lot of animals in one place, some of them are going to die. Uh, you know, it, it's very sad. But, you know, I feel we'll be getting into an argument over our zoo's right, which isn't an interesting conversation to have, but is not the one we're having here. Um, but, you know, you're looking at these sort of large exotic mammals 
perishing. Um, and I don't know. I just, as I said, I think it's uh, something to bear in mind. We look at how things went. It's not that when things get worse later, it's all suddenly dropped off a cliff. I think the importance of knowing this stuff is the warning signs were there. So moving on. Um, as David Gill did, he clearly felt these failures to follow employment law or keep his animals alive did not reflect on his ability to successfully run a zoo, because in 2003, he opened another one, Mariba Wild Animal Park. Our more geographically aware listeners will know that Mariba is not in Cumbria, instead being located in Queensland. For a man who sees himself as something of an iconoclast, it's nice to see that he follows some traditions like relocating to Australia after being caught breaking the law in Britain. <laughs> I mean... Transportation was cruel and barbaric, but equally, if it got rid of David Gill, you know... Almost certainly worth it, really. Well, I'm just saying we seem to be having a lot of empire nostalgia in the country at the moment. Like, I'm not really on board with it, but you could win me round. That's all I'm saying, Boris. What I appreciate, really, is he fails to adequately manage one zoo. You know, open another, I do appreciate, you know, you want your business to expand. But is he commuting between sort of... Queensland so as far and, as and I Cumbria. can tell, he went over for a bit first to sort of, you know, sound out some contacts, one of whom I'm going to introduce you to in a second. Um, is it the local police firearms officer? Uh, it, it is not, but uh, he does have a son-in-law who's an arms dealer. Oh, um, so <laughs> he's kind of scaling up in his, uh, yeah, in his gun-based know, contacts. Why outsource to the police? We're bringing it back in-house. Uh, well, again, we'll we'll go into David Gill's beliefs, but he is a uh, he's a strong proponent of the free market. Um, but uh, yeah, from what I understand, he went over to Australia for a bit, sourced out these contacts, and then moved back over for a sort of medium term stay. I mean, it, as you'll see, it didn't all go to plan. Shock horror. But um, you know, I think he was uh, he was intending on a sort of reasonable duration being spent in Australia. Uh, so, his new venture didn't go smoothly from the start, with difficulties obtaining permits to get animals, uh, and eventually a collection in Tipperary Station in the Northern Territory was sourced as the uh, sort of the primary location they could get some animals from. So, this collection was uh, owned by a businessman. He was basically uh, keeping sort of a lot of hoof stock animals, so, you know, sort of zebra, deer, various forms of wild cattle, buffalo, you know, antelope, that kind of thing. So, there was a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, this guy was looking to offload and um, David Gill thinks, right, great. You know, this is a, the perfect opportunity to get these animals essentially a cost. Um, which, again, I'm not sure is how you should go about setting up a zoo, but, you know, equally. No, it's not the kind of thing you need to sort of bargain on, is it? Yeah, it's not. I mean, I understand, again, these things are difficult and, you know, it's, it's easy to go in of an idealist's view, but... I'll just let you see how Australia pans out and you tell me if you think some more planning should have gone into this as a venture. Now, from uh, his arrival uh, in the Antipodes, Gill was not totally without allies as controversial MP Bob Catter took up his case, even going as far to address the Australian Parliament on the issue. Now, have you ever heard of Bob Catter? Uh, No, I have not. So... uh, one of these figures who starts out as a sort of a traditional working man's leftist MP and then sort of begins a, a transitionary period. Um, uh, so believes in mass mobilization as the cause for political success, as far as I can tell, you know, in the way that sort of the labor movements and, um, you know, sort of the, the rights of the working man. Um, 
but Bob Catter has said and done some fairly reprehensible things. Um, Catter has got a track record of being on the wrong side of the argument. So he was opposing AIDS prevention measures. Um, essentially, when AIDS was rampaging through the uh, the indigenous Aboriginal peoples, um, apologies if that is the wrong word. To the best of my knowledge, that's the the correct way of uh, addressing sort of the first people to uh, to inhabit Australia. So sorry if I've got that wrong. Um, but yeah, they were you know there was issues in the eighties and nineties of an AIDS pandemic. Kata was actively trying to prevent the handing out of condoms. Um, no, that's classy. Great guy. Uh, he tried to dress up his support for that by saying that it was an attempted uh, sterilization of the uh, of the native groups um, by, you know, minimizing the opportunity to have kids. And he's going, no, it's just, we don't want them to I, die. I always appreciate a sort of a false moral high ground. Oh, he loves those. Um, speaking of which, he also voted against decriminalizing homosexuality. I, you know, I'm shocked a man that did nothing during the AIDS crisis. Is also against homosexuality. He did not do nothing. He was on the aid side. He took a stance. <laughs> the fact that, that stance was the side of the disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did take a side. I mean, like, not with his species, with, you know, a disease. But with a crippling, horrible, wasting disease. You know, that is, that is the man Bob Catter is. Um, most recently, he's been recorded giving the membership pledge of the White Nationalist Proud Boy organisation. That was where I, what you may have heard of him from, as he. Uh, that yeah, that's. I don't like the idea of them going global. Uh, they have a, a degree of a presence in the UK, and I don't know how organised. I know there are definitely people who sympathise with it, and they, they're you know they're not an American organisation. They view themselves as the Western chauvinists rather than, uh, you know, I think they see this sort of the Anglosphere and the by extension sort of Eurosphere, um, as their their sort of their grounding point rather than uh, exclusively North American. But yeah, Australia being obviously a sort of a, a white Anglo former colony is the kind of place, yeah. you know, that they're proud boy. Very, you know, similar to the Americas in a way and mm. sort of has the same potential for the proud boys. Well, exactly, yeah. But um, he, he tried to laugh this off. He said, you know, it was just sort of something that young fellas get me to come up and say and... Again, he seems like a, a fairly shameless and uh, unrepentant individual. Um, in short, he's just the kind of character who would recognise Gill as a kindred spirit. On the 24th of March, 2004, Catter, presumably with a straight face, told the assembled MPs that concerning Gill, I'm not going to do the accent, I have personally, and I think everyone else has, checked out his bona fides. He has a very outstanding background. He's come to Australia and we are very honoured to have him. <laughs> Outstanding background. Three minutes reading a local newspaper could tell you otherwise. It was not hard for me to research this. No. <laughs> I guess, you know, 2004, dial-up speeds are a bit slow. You know, he's probably Googled the name, but it was taking about five minutes to load up, you know, so he got bored. But, you know, to stand there and say, I've checked his background. And it's outstanding. <laughs> It's not even, you know, passable. It's outstanding. Outstanding. That rhino was frankly asking for it. (laughs) Those dead giraffes, those tigers, that teenage girl, you know, who he binned his wife off for, who Casa had met and was aware by all accounts of Gil's marital circumstances, 
I'm fairly sure if he didn't meet David Gill's wife, he was definitely aware of her existence because he met David Gill's children. Um, so, yeah, outstanding, outstanding man. Very honoured to have him. Very, very honoured. And that, that's going to be recorded for the rest of time, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's in Australia's in version Parliament. of Hansard. Yeah. That's where I got the quote from. Yeah, that's um, depressing. So, yeah. Bob fucking Catter. I mean, to be honest, compared to some of the other stuff that he's down as saying, this is this is a footnote. You know, when he's when he's taking the pro AIDS agenda, um, you know, um, well, I feel you know his his, his concerns on uh, on zoo safety are, uh, are probably sort of yeah lesser it's a sort of than the do what you want as long as you don't give the animals any condoms. Yeah. This is one thing I do need to check with you, David. This will be a condom-free zoo, yes? Very important to me. If I see anyone putting a condom on an animal. Do, do you think that's why he likes zoos? Because, sort of, you know, in zoos, there's always sort of effort on breeding. You know, like, a lot of a zoo's budget goes into sort of ensuring the animals breed. Yeah. Which I, is I, kind I, of what he tried to do during a, an AIDS fighter. I don't know, um, because sort of looking at Catter, he's one of these who whilst he has had... Christian voters, you know, sort of backing him for some of his hardline stances. He doesn't appear to be sort of overtly religious. Um, he does appear to be more sort of aligned with yeah, that traditional Australian Labour movement, but one of those people who, you know, isn't right wing in the sense of they're, uh, you know, they wanting to conserve and keep sort of particular power structures in place, but is right wing and sort of maybe some of their more social beliefs. Um, um, so I feel, you know, maybe a, a a comparison and I don't think I don't like her but I don't think she said anything this horrible is is Kate Huey you know somebody who was normally representing the, the left-wing party is in many ways sort of you know finding herself on the right-wing side of the argument yeah um so but you know to for all my criticisms of Kate Huey she's not um you know not lining up with uh, with neo-nazis so you know there is that um but yeah. Uh, anyway, getting back to uh, to this. So Bobcat was very honoured. Uh, these sentiments did not appear to be shared by Australian law enforcement, who, as Catter also referenced in his speech, had already by this point raided Gill's Australian residence, although what they were looking for is not quite clear. I mean, it's not a good look, is it, David? I mean, how long had he even been in Australia at this point? A couple of months. That's, yeah, to, you know, arrive in a country, get on the radar of the local law enforcement to the point where your home's been raided in a matter of months. And again, wealthy white man, business owner, to get on the radar of the local law enforcement in yeah, Australia. Really hired someone. You, you know, it's, it's like, there are incidents where you can blame the police for racially profiling. This is really not one of the, like, David Gill has, you know... Has got every chance of not getting in trouble with law enforcement. Yeah, in in terms of police cooperation, he couldn't have been, you know, in a better position. Yeah, and you know, he's I don't know what he did, but I would be fascinated to find out. Email in if you uh you know email in if you have these answers because I am desperate. So on the in the off chance any retired Australian law enforcement officials who were serving two thousand and four and were in the Gill raid I will, I will give you money to tell me what, what happened there. Um, right. Okay. So uh, David Gill's been raided. The experience clearly spooked him. 
and the Canberra Times reports how Mariba had to pull out of the Tipperary station deal because its owner, David Gill, had fled back to the UK following raids by authorities. So, yeah, whatever they were looking for, David was not giving them a chance to stay around and find it. And that is the behaviour of the innocent man. No, no. Well, you know, the only thing we can sort of say is... To, in order to get a search warrant, you know, there has to be probable cause. Which, so you you would again... Um, um, so, in true David Gill fashion, he did not manage to depart Australia before the escape of a cheetah from his new park, which for which he was ruled to be responsible, and subsequently occurred yet another fine, this one for 10,000 Australian dollars. So, you know... I mean... That's the impression, yeah. Arrived in Australia, let let an animal loose on his Lined up with the Nazi sympathiser who loves AIDS, let a cheater out, got raided by the police, went home. Good holiday. Yeah, sometimes I'm impressed with how much people manage to fit in their days, you know, because I'm I'm terminally unproductive. You know, the one thing you can't say about him is that he's unproductive. He does get a lot of stuff done. David Gill, you know, is, is many things. You cannot call him lazy. No. <laughs> you know, he may love a shortcut, but, you know, lazy not. Yeah, you know, there is, there's always something going on. Uh, I mean, oh, certainly not boring. Oh, God, no, he is not, he is not boring. Um, I mean, just, just wait till you get to the book. But, um, yeah, David Gill is, is a man who, who gets shit done. Now, whether it was shit that should have been done is a very separate question. But it gets done when old D. Jill is around. So, uh, gets his fine. Uh, it gets a bit sad here because this was not the only cost he incurred. Uh, a lady called Wendy Husband, a zoo consultant brought in to clear up Gill's mess after his hasty departure, told The Guardian in 2017 that it was really shocking to the community. He had charmed them all. He left without paying the local people who had built the zoo. Oh, God. I mean, that, that's an expense, you know... That is a massive expense to build a zoo. I mean, I imagine these local people sort of jumping for joy when, you know, they were getting these contracts, etc. And he didn't pay anyone. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's this theme of him being charming and charismatic does come through. Um, I've seen videos of him talking. I don't know if I quite get it. Um, you know, it, I don't think he comes, I, I wouldn't sort of slate his media presentational skills. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, and again, you know, having seen the, you know, the, the rubbish that I'm currently presenting, I don't want to be sort of knocking anybody for, uh, for bad media handling, but, um, you know, I, maybe he's one of these people who sort of can really turn it on in one-on-one situations. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sort of, oh, look at me. I'm so great. Do you want to look at my animals? You know, yeah. I, I can see that there would be a pull. Yeah. Cause you know, he seemed to convince Catler and I don't know whether it was sort of recognition of kindred spirits or whether... Gil genuinely sort of, you know, turned the charm on with him. But, um, and you will see this throughout the story that when he needs to, he can sort of persuade people about himself. Um, you know, there is, there is that, and he does have that ability. Um, so, just wrapping up on Australia, the story does not have a happy ending, with only the zebras from the Tipperary collection making it to the Mariba Park. Many of the other animals were sold to Mary River Safaris, a private game reserve. Mary River had not confirmed how many or which animals they acquired, but what we do know is that the herd of scimitar-horned oryx, a beautiful antelope which inspired the unicorn myth and are effectively extinct in the wild, made their way there. One was recently shot on a canned hunt by Australian arms dealer Robert Neoya, 
the son-in-law of Bob Catter. Oh, I, I love a beautiful circle. Yeah. I mean, I'm amazed this is legal because, um, you know, similar Hondorix, I know, I don't think they're uh, critically endangered anymore. I could be wrong. I know they're definitely, you know, there's a reasonable sized captive population, but I don't think we're at the point where we can be just uh, popping them off in hunts. Um, again, could be wrong, but I'm, you know, it's one of the most sort of famous conservation stories of, uh, sort of this herd being brought back from the brink by uh, an international breeding program. And um, it seems odd to me that's allowed. I'm not saying you know, there's anything illegal about it. I'm just saying it seems a uh, unusual. unusual rule. Yeah. yeah. So I was a bit surprised when I read that. And again, I'm not suggesting the cat has sunk the whole thing so his son-in-law could go shooting. I'm just saying that from everything I've read about both of them, they're not people I would care to spend any time with ever. Um, you know, just the really... Neoya seems like, you know, your typical sort of... Uh, well, again, I don't want to say anything that'll get me sued, but, uh, you know, arms in arms dealing, he feels he seems to have found the profession for him. You know, I feel that we could sort of sum the man up that way. Yeah. Yeah, not a nice bloke. Mariba Park did not fare much better, undergoing involuntary liquidation after Gill's rapid departure. Uh, it limped on for a bit while struggling with various issues until it closed its doors for good in 2013. More details would eventually emerge about this Antipodean awfulness, but that's for later in the story. And uh, so that's part one. What are your thoughts on uh, old Davy Gill so far? I mean, I feel like, you know, he, he went in, obviously, you know, the start of the story, everything seemed great. And I'm just concerned because there's been sort of a consistent decline as time's gone on. And the fact, you know, we're on part one, I'm almost anxious for how, how bad it can get. I mean, at the risk of spoilers, it gets worse, like significantly worse, I would say, both in terms of impact of animals and human beings. I mean, um, I, I'm impressed with his quick in and out of Australia, you know, sort of in causes much chaos as possible and then leave. Yeah, I mean, it's just ticking all the boxes, isn't it? You know, um, I think, again, you know, you, you see this with him. of uh, He's somebody who's very keen to start stuff and he's very ambitious. I think sort of shines uh, sort of throughout his story that there is this is very genuine ambition driving him. And I think even at this early point, whilst there was definitely some cynicism and some greed, is his intentions weren't purely profit-driven. But I feel with this sort of self-imposed iconoclast status, as I mentioned, you know, I'm David, I'm against everything. Sometimes knowledge can't really be ignored. Sometimes rules are there for a reason. And wanting to do everything your own way. You know what I mean? You wouldn't do it when you're driving your car. You know, there is a reason the road has rules. It's not like I've invented a new way of driving and it's got my feet on the steering wheel. Uh, you know what I mean? He, he is trying to do a specialist skill set uh, yeah. and reinvent it as he's going. And um, I, I feel, you know, that is where a lot of this stuff comes from. Animal welfare is not really a place, you know, for a maverick. Yeah, and you know, I think there's there's a difference between I'm challenging this particular practice, which I feel is outdated or not got the animal's best welfare at heart, which I think there's always going to be room for, and I'm just doing everything how I feel like it, with often quite slapdash safety measures. Yeah, and I mean, I sort of get a sense of like, you know, he appreciates starting a project, but maybe gets bored and moves on to something, you know, some abandoning Cumbria. There is a hint of that. 
Um, there are other factors as well. I think, like I said, whether you call it greed or ambition, I suppose, depends on your, your personal outlook. But um, the idea of expanding is something that sort of keeps on coming up and whether it be overseas or to a bigger UK park. But uh, Gil is, is genuinely a man with a lot of drive and we will see we will see that uh, coming up. You know, he's he has a stab at a few careers, including author and politician. So uh, it's very exciting. Um, for now, um, this is the end of episode one. Um, you know, if you like us, please follow us. Uh, right. Anyway, Jordy, is there anything you want to promote, plug, encourage people to do? Uh, I mean, you know, come and join us next time. Uh, I'm keen to hear what goes on further in this absolute shit show and, oh, I, and it's I hope incredible. you well yeah um join us uh join us next week where we uh, the working title for the episode is part two running from husbands for office and into trouble so uh lots and lots of gillisms to to really get stuck into all right thank you for listening everyone bye-bye